Hey, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our first broadcast of the new year, and we're happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Juan Pablo Villasmil. Uh, how you doing? Happy 2024. <laughs> Happy 2024. I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, great. Now, of course, you are a Young Voices contributor, but I'm going to ask you, Juan, take a few moments and just uh, tell tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm Juan Pablo. You can call me JP. I write about American culture, foreign policy, and sometimes other cool stuff like domestic politics and elections. And yeah, I'm working for the spectator world right now. And I'm having a lot of fun with Young Voices. Well, I'm looking at a piece you wrote for uh, USA Today, and I got to tell you, this one this one strikes a nerve with me because I, I have kids who are your age, and and the title here is "I Believe in the Traditional American Dream, but it won't be around for my kids to inherit." I catch that vibe from from my kids, and they're you know most of my kids are grown up now too, and they wonder too: is is the American Dream still going to be around? You know, for for those who will follow us. Talk to me a little bit about what uh, what prompted you to write this article in the first place. So, my my interaction with the American Dream, the concept of the American Dream, started when I was really young. <laughs> so I lived in another country in Venezuela for most of my childhood. And the concept of the American dream is one people that live outside the U.S. understand as well. Like the U.S. is this very special place. And then by the end of high school, I started to see a lot of ingratitude. Uh, a lot of people refusing to stand up for the flag and things like that. And, and it was really hard for me to comprehend it until I was in college and I started to have a better grasp on what's catalyzing this sense of resentment toward the country that translates into the repudiation of such dream. So at American University, they did this study and I was selected as one of the people in the focus group. And I, I had conversations about what the American dream is with peers of, of my age. And I realized that all of them did not understand the American dream like I did. And like most people do, actually, like most old, like older, older people do. In a way, I felt kind of like Alexis de Tocqueville, if that makes sense. Like I, I, I come in here with like an outsider's perspective in a, in a certain way, and I see people talking about a concept, and I can make, I, I felt like I was able to make some observations that some people would have been able to do, and. That was really shocking for me when I saw that a lot of people did not view the American dream as a concept that relies on resilience and personal responsibility. And it was mostly about just freedom from restraint mm -hmm. and happiness, which are not bad. Those are good things, but they're not what the American dream is supposed to encompass, you know, like Let's not the way people Let before us have to. It. Let's flesh that out a little bit, because I'm sure when people hear the term American dream, everybody kind of has their own idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know what that means. Specifically, though, when, when I say the American dream, what uh, what does that bring to mind for you? So in the article I, I discussed, and I have another one that's similar for Town Hall, 
in which the American dream is actually a concept that uh, has been used for a while. And initially, the first conception of the American dream was one of a national dream. So, and then that national dream, which again, it's in the title, American dream, uh, started to become an individualistic one in the sense of owning a home, getting married, uh, buying a car, and so on. But that dream initially was about securing liberty for all and moving forward like a nation, a common dream. And what's funny is that it went from communal to individual and now to narcissistic. Uh-huh. Because what we see in what we see in the polls is not like a common sense individualistic type of American dream, like, hey, I want to have a family, I want to buy a home. No, it's more of like I want to be happy, I want to make money, and then marriage, family formation, love for country. They're they they rank much lower in the priority scale of Gen Z individuals, and in a sense, this makes. This makes sense. In a sense, this makes sense. Because when asked about what frustrates them the most, Gen Z answers politics. So they think they're doing better than their parents in every single category, health, uh, making money, everything. But when it comes to politics, they think everything's worse. So instinctually, they blame that on the country. And the American dream has a lot to do with the country. One of the things you point out in your article is that there's a decline in patriotism. And politics can certainly play into that. Are there other factors that might affect why uh, Gen Z doesn't love the U.S. like the boomers do? So I would say that a lot of it has to do with an obsession with diversity and I don't mean this to say that diversity is inherently bad, but when diversity is is treated as sacrosanct and in our civil religion, it does hinder other things that matter, like social cohesion. So we become enamored by the idea of difference to such a degree that we've forgotten what unifies us. And I know this sounds like the typical like politician speech. Like I sound like Vivek Ramaswamy <laughs> or something, right? but, but it's true. Like it's true. It sounds cheesy, but it's true. We, we've talked so much about what makes us different. And in a sense, that's good. Like it's good that we're different, that we have different ideas, but what makes us all Americans is to just a really, I don't know, vague idea about equality. No, it used to be like, real tangible constitutional principles, uh, institutions, uh, traditions that permeated those institutions. And now it seems to be that, like, the only thing that, for a lot of my peers, you know, that makes us American is just like, we're different, we're, we're diverse. And okay, that's okay, but that won't make us a strong nation by itself. So let's. We've got about two minutes left here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how can we revive the American dream. In in your opinion, what would it take to to basically, you know, put some optimism back on the table for for Gen Z? Oof, that's that's a really good question. I would say that I don't blame Gen Z, and that that's something that I try to do in in my Gen Z specific writing. I'm not like. I'm not like a, a mini boomer 
saying, guys, we got to do better. I'm one of them. So when I talk about the loneliness epidemic, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this. I'm Gen C. When I talk about the social media addiction, I'm a part of this. I'm Gen C. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. And we have to first acknowledge these problems. And we need our leaders to acknowledge this as well. So a lot of our disgust with the United States doesn't stem from us observing uh, reality and not liking it. It stems from us having problems within ourselves. And that's that culture of narcissism, first of all. But also it has to do with that loneliness epidemic. Gen C has less sex than generations before us and not because we're going more to church. Like, think about that. That's absurd. We talk about sexual revolution all the time and we're supposed to be free, but we're having less sex. Why? And it's because we're lonely. We're in this, under this facade of infinite interconnection with social media, but actually we're not that connected because actual relationship requires sacrifice, time, and not just screen play and PS4. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I wish we had about 10 more, no, about 20 more minutes to go into this topic even further. This, this is fascinating. Again, uh, we're, we're talking with uh, Juan P. Villasmil. He is a Young Voices contributor. JP, where can people find you on social media? Where can they find this article, for, for, their, for instance, to read it for themselves? So there's one on USA Today and another in Town Hall. I don't remember the exact title, but just Google my name, Juan P. Villasmil, USA Today and Town Hall. And if you want to read more of my stuff, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or both. So it's real J-P-V-I-L-L-A-S-M-I-L and then Instagram's J-P Villasmil without the real. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome Jonas Du back to the show. Jonas, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Brian. So my name is Jonas. I'm a current junior studying political science and economics at Columbia University in New York. And I am the founding editor of the Columbia Independent, a heterodox newspaper that promotes free speech on campus. Nice. And we're going to be talking about uh, free speech. And in fact, one of the aspects of free speech that, uh, in my experience, uh, the, the left has really struggled with, and that is the idea that uh, there is hate speech out there. And, and uh, boy, they, they want to, to stamp out hate speech. Of course, it's kind of a fluid definition. So let's start by, by talking a little bit about hate speech. What does the left mean when, when they refer to something as hate speech? What are they trying to stop? So, Brian, we've really seen the term hate speech be weaponized by the campus left um, in recent years to basically encompass anything that they disagree with or they say is contributing to conservatism, con con contributing towards ideologies that they disagree with, um, anything that's anything from ranging from DEI initiatives, campaigning against that can be considered hate speech to opposing affirmative action that can be even uh, considered hate speech. And that also includes, you know, what we traditionally think of as hate speech, such as racist speech, sexist speech. Um, it's sort of expanded by definition a lot. And a lot of that is due to sort of the weaponization 
of speech as a tool to control what is considered acceptable discourse on our college campuses. So now I've heard people, you know, who I, I'm trying to take him at face value when they say, look, this isn't about imposing thought control or speech codes on people. It's just about insisting that people be polite. I, I don't believe them, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll say, OK, maybe they're trying to address some kind of a wrong here. You point out in your article, though, there have been some really egregious examples, especially since the Hamas attacks on Israel of October 7th of last year, that are, are showing a whole new side to how the left views free speech versus hate speech. Talk to me about some of the hypocrisy that you've seen on display on, on college campuses. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so to be clear, uh, as someone who supports the First Amendment, as someone that supports free expression and free speech, I think that colleges should not have any speech codes at all. I think that anything permissible under the First Amendment, including hate speech, should be allowed on college campuses. Otherwise, you risk a lot of censorship of permissible ideas. That being said, you cannot take a position that we should stop hate speech and also take the position of promoting hate speech. And this has been so clear um, in the campus left after the October 7th attacks. So the same people that have historically been saying we need to disinvite these Israeli uh, officials, we need to disinvite people that are Zionists, we need to disinvite people that we perceive as racist. All of these sort of people have now come out for Hamas. And they have come out in support of terrorism and in support of things and slogans such as, you know, from the river to the sea or uh, by any means necessary, which to a lot of Jews on campus, which Columbia has a lot of, it feels a lot like hate speech to them. And suddenly they're not so concerned about protecting campus from hate speech. They're more concerned about their own ideological agenda. So. And it's especially been egregious with Students for Justice from Palestine because they themselves have written op-eds in the Columbia Daily Spectator where they wanted to condemn the appearance of a former Israeli minister of justice for saying things that were anti-Palestinian. And here they are, you know, in their official statements, basically condoning terrorism. Wow. Yeah. Hypocrisy is really unbecoming in any setting, but uh, this seems to be a, a particularly ugly form of it. Um, I appreciate, by the way, Jonas, your, your clarification. Look, you're not talking about, well, we need to restrict their speech, you know, the way they want to restrict our speech. Um, the, the best antidote to hate speech, I've always understood, was, was more free speech. In other words, let people speak, let the best ideas rise to the top, because when we start putting limits out there, we're going to necessarily limit good ideas as well as bad ideas. Absolutely. And we've seen throughout the history of the United States, through the history of the First Amendment, we've learned as a country that when you make certain forms of expression feared, that breeds more hate and that breeds more repression. And we never end up countering those, quote unquote, harmful ideas. And so, of course, the best solution to combating ideas you disagree with is counter speech. And if colleges all of a sudden try to define hate speech and regulate it, this and that, um, we're going to have an even more sensory environment. And it's going to be even worse than what we're seeing on our college campuses now.
Now, it, it feels like there could be a lot of subjectivity in terms of what one person finds objectionable or hateful. Um, you know, there are some forms of speech that I'm like, man, I don't want my kids hearing F-bombs being dropped and whatnot. To me, that's that's really ugly speech. At the same time, there are people who think, well, any expression of religious, you know, sentiment is, is hateful or hurtful to them. Is there is there a way we could... Uh, keep all sides happy in terms of is there is there a rule of thumb as to uh, when speech is appropriate versus when it isn't or is it, is it just kind of you know every man for himself in that arena of free speech i think if we're talking about college campuses these places where future citizens future leaders are being educated there's not really a line you can draw in which you're going to make people happy. At a campus like Columbia, you have so much diversity of people from all 50 states, you have people from different countries coming to study here. And to try and make all those people, all those different cultures and ideologies happy, you're going to fail and you're going to piss people off. And it's not going to be a conducive environment for free expression. So, so the best solution is to normalize a culture in which speech is unrestricted, in which students feel free to express their opinions in accordance with the First Amendment and make it so that when you hear something you disagree with, you don't immediately jump to that's hate speech or let's restrict that or the campus administration needs to do something about that. I think if we can build that sort of culture of free expression, then we're all going to be better off and then people are going to be the most happy. There, there has to be some kind of uh, personal responsibility at some level here, too. Um, I, I, an old friend of mine, this guy was like one of the original libertarian thinkers that I encountered, told me once upon a time, he says, look, either you will decide what ideas you will consider, what images you will view, what things you will listen to, or someone else will choose. And, and it, it always struck me, he put that responsibility on me rather than saying, outsource this to somebody who knows what's best for you to see here, et cetera, or, or even consider. Um, it, what do you think about to how we might persuade people to take that responsibility and, and not try to outsource it to the state, for instance, to, to police this kind of thought or that kind of thought? Yeah, Brian, this is a huge problem, I think, especially among Gen Z, because especially now what we're seeing is people going even further into their own echo chambers on social media, where a lot of people are getting their information about campus events relating to the Israel Hamas war. People are only seeing the things that they want to see. They're only seeing the pro-Israel side or the pro-Palestinian side. And there is rampant misinformation going on on both sides, and it's because people are trying to outsource the information, and either consciously or subconsciously, they're doing it in a way that aligns with themselves politically. So it's a really hard problem, but it's something that we can sort of build a culture towards fixing if our institutions, like our colleges, start to emphasize the importance of viewpoint diversity, of the importance of reading things for yourself, of engaging with people who you disagree with, um, respectful disagreement. And I think if we can build that from the moment students step on campus, we're going to be better off. I love it. Uh, again, we are talking with uh, Jonas Dew. He is a Young Voices contributor and a junior at Columbia University. Um, where can people follow you? Where can they find your writing so that they can uh, check out more of your, your takes on, on what's going on? Of course, the best place to find me in my writing is on my X account at Jonas Y D U. J O N A S Y D U. 
All right, Jonas, great to catch up with you again. Happy 2024 to you. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thanks so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Sarah Anderson. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Sarah, there are those who are meeting you for the first time. Take a moment to tell us about who you are and what you do. Sure, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Like you said, I'm Sarah Anderson. I am the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties for the R Street Institute. And anyone unfamiliar with the R Street Institute, we are a right of center think tank that does research promoting limited effective government. And the issues that I get to work on criminal justice are right at the core of that. So glad to be here to talk about it. All right. Uh, You know, being an election year, I know criminal justice reform is uh, is one of those topics that uh, it is going to it's going to be attractive to a lot of people because there, there's a, a lot of need for it. Talk to me about uh, something that took place during Trump's term as president. Um, I, I needed to be reminded about the, the First Step Act because, uh, well, I've slept since then, and apparently I'd forgotten what that was all about. What did the First Step Act, which was, which was enacted in 2018, what did that accomplish? So the First Step Act was a historic bipartisan bill that was passed in 2018 in Congress, signed into law by the law and order president, Donald Trump. Um, And it actually was one of the biggest overhauls of the federal criminal justice system since the war on drugs started in 1970, meaning that it went back and looked in federal code that what is the federal prison system doing right? What is it doing wrong? What is the federal sentencing system doing right and wrong? What is the federal reentry system for those coming out of prison doing right and wrong? And really made a lot of changes to that to lower recidivism rates. And for anyone unfamiliar with the word recidivism, it means reoffense or return to prison for those who have already um, served some time. So ideally, of course, the goal of your criminal justice system is to have a 0% recidivism rate, right? Whereby nobody who goes through the system ever comes back into it. Um, That's not realistic. Um, We know that around the country, the national recidivism rate as reported by the Bureau of Prisons is around 42%. Under the First Step Act, all those who have gone through the programming implemented under the bill, their recidivism rate is about 12%. So that's less than a third of what the national recidivism rate is. So we know that this bill worked and it's quite amazing, quite an amazing accomplishment to have, um, you know, divided Congress like we had under President Trump and to have him sign the bill into law really speaks to the benefits of the limited effective nature of that program. I was surprised as I was reading your article, though, to learn, though, that uh, even other Republican, uh, you know, candidates like like Ron DeSantis aren't necessarily mm-hmm. so so fond of that that first step act. What's what is DeSantis's take? Right. Well, the interesting thing is, you know how politics goes, Brian, everyone's trying to make their stand, make their point, differentiate themselves from one another, especially in a primary field. So the curious part about DeSantis's take on the bill, which at the outset of the primary, he dubbed a jailbreak bill, Mm. um, despite having voted for uh, a form of the bill when he was in Congress at the time, and then actually signing into law in Florida, what was dubbed the Florida First Step Act, which was very, very similar to the federal bill, but just for Florida's uh, current criminal justice system. So I would speculate that he's just trying to differentiate himself from Donald Trump in a year, especially last year, when we knew that violent crime was up right from the year before. During the pandemic, we saw a couple of rises year over year in violent crime rates. 
thankfully this past year in October, those levels actually dropped back down to pre-pandemic levels. So there's really no need for the tough on crime rhetoric that DeSantis is putting out there. Um, he should stand behind you know, the things that he actually did in Florida, the things he championed in Congress. Um, and that's what candidates like Chris Christie have done um, when he gets hit on the controversy around certain bail reforms that come under fire when we talk about public safety. He actually stood up and said, no, what I did in New Jersey when I was governor was the right thing for public safety. It was the right thing for the people. And I'm not going to back down from that. So that's pretty encouraging to see. So where do Democrats land on this? Are, are they going to try to get any bounce out of this in 2024? Yeah, well, it's interesting because typically um, Democrats are the ones who are easier to get on board with criminal justice reforms um, just because they come at it from a slightly different angle frequently from the social justice angle, the racial justice angle, um, which are important things, no doubt. But of course, the justice system is meant to keep people safe, and that has to be the primary goal. And so that's where Republicans and Democrats can really align on this. And that's what happened with the First Step Act. Um, every single Democrat voted for it. And I believe in the final vote, there were 30 Republicans who voted against it in the House. But it was like a, I think it was 366 to 32 or something was the vote in the House when it passed in 2018. Um, so just wildly bipartisan. It's policies that we know work. Um, and hopefully candidates, instead of backing away from something for fear of a rising crime, what you should actually look for is it's, you know, not in spite of a potential rising crime or in spite of public safety, but in fact, because of it, that we need to look for these reforms that make the criminal justice system work better, rehabilitate people, prevent crime, even sometimes before it happens, um, and help people live a productive life after they return to society. Sarah, talk to me about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, he's making some pretty big waves. Where does he come down on issues like this? That's right. It's um, it's tough to say. A lot of his rhetoric, when you listen to it, it's hard to pin down where his policy position would be. But it's certainly no secret that he's made a big appeal to the Trump base. And of course, Trump ended up embracing this type of policy in 2018 and throughout his term as president. Um, and he actually just recently put out his platinum plan for his candidacy into 2024, and that included a commitment to a second step act. So I think if Ramaswamy was smart about it, he would look to also continue those types of things from the person that he's uh, sort of modeling his uh, rhetoric and demeanor after. It would be wise for him to land there. But honestly, tough to say based on the rhetoric that he uh, comes out with sometimes. Okay, another question that comes to mind, too. Um, it, sometimes it seems like there's there's a very different approach to to criminal justice in the federal government now. In other words, like there's, a, there's two tiers. Um, and if mm -hmm. you are on the conservative side of things, it's very law and order. Uh, on the yeah. other hand, you know, um, Antifa, BLM and some of the, the activities they were engaged in in the summer of 2020, that that kind of gets a pass or gets explained away. For justice to be justice, doesn't it need to be impartial? Is, is there anything that can be done about uh, de-weaponizing the justice system, at least at the federal level? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really tough thing because, of course, it's just human nature to want the end result that you want. And unfortunately, people sometimes look to weaponize the criminal justice system and say, hey, I think this is how it should be, except for these certain people or these people with these certain types of beliefs. Um, and we can't have that, right? If we're going to have law and order, it does truly have to be law and order where the system treats everybody fairly. Um, and these types of reforms are meant to do exactly that and take away some of the 
uh, policies that were put into place in the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s that we do know um, created massive racial disparities in our society, that we do know often criminalize poverty when it doesn't have to be. And that's where the discussion on cash bail and what Chris Christie has done in um, New Jersey comes into play, where we need a system that does truly treat everybody equally. Um, and this is a policy that people can get around that will do that. Okay, we've got about two minutes left. Um, Sarah, what is what is the second step look like? Is there anybody proposing, you know, step two? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Of course, we know the First Step Act got at some prison reforms, inside of prison reforms. It got at some sentencing reforms. There was a bill called the um, gosh, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, which was sort of the precursor to the First Step Act, which ended up getting combined with a different bill from the House. And they took some of the sentencing reforms out of that in the final package for the First Step Act. So folks could go back and look at some of the reform that, reforms that were proposed there. Um, various options for expungement of criminal records, closing of criminal records after an individual has remained crime-free for a certain period of time is obviously a great option to allow somebody to truly move on. Um, there's a lot of evidence that once somebody has remained crime-free for three, five, seven years, depending on the type of offense, they're very, very, very unlikely to commit another offense. Um, so expungement policies could be looked at, of course, at the federal level. Marijuana reform is something that's really important to consider as the supermajority of states have some form of legal cannabis. It's tough right. to understand how the federal government has not yet done anything to get in line with that. Um, and then, of course, reentry policies as well um, to continue to allow people to be more successful when they return to society and be the productive citizens contributing to the economy that we want them to be. I am so glad you were keeping tabs on this and reporting on it. And I hope we get a chance to talk again in the coming year uh, to see how, how some of this is playing out. Again, we're talking with Sarah Anderson. She is a Young Voices contributor and also associate director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties Program at the R Street Institute. Um, Sarah, tell everyone where they can find you on social media. Sure. If you go ahead and just go to uh, R Street's website, which is R Street, the letter R Street.org, um, you can find my page through there, my social media. You can find the rest of our criminal justice team who does work on bail policies, pretrial policing, um, in prison policies, and reentry, as well as juvenile justice, which is very important to, to look at when you're looking at future crime. So um, you can find us at R Street.org and find my social media from there. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome John Hartley. John is a Young Voices contributor, and John, I see you actually wear a number of other hats as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks so much, Brian, for having me. Um, so I'm uh, an economist in training at, uh, at Stanford University. I'm a PhD student there in, uh, in economics, and I also wear a few other hats uh, at, at a few uh, think tanks. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute in Canada. I'm a research fellow at the Foundation for Research uh, on Equal Opportunity, or FreeOp. I'm also a uh, research associate at uh, Hoover Institution. Uh, so so I, I usually work on um, policy things, um, but usually um, all related to um, opportunity um, and, and how sort of regulatory barriers hold back uh, the poor in terms of economic mobility. I try to look for good news about the economy 
you know, pretty much on a daily basis. I'm not seeing a lot of it at the moment. In fact, I'm seeing a little bit of pessimism, if I can just be honest about it. But I'm looking at an article you wrote for National Review about the Tax Cuts and Job Act, Jobs Act. And I'll admit, this one, this one got past me. I don't think I really paid much attention when this was passed back in 2018. This is one of those examples, though, of a, of a program that actually did what it was supposed to do. Talk to me a little bit about what that program entailed and, and how it succeeded. Yeah, well, um, there's it, a great question. Um, so you, have, you sort of have to um, roll back the clock in, in your mind, um, you know, six, uh, six, seven years ago uh, when uh, the Trump administration um, got in in uh, 2017. Uh, they um, one of the first things that was uh, key on their agenda was passing um, comprehensive tax reform, namely corporate tax reform. It, it was something that hadn't been done since the 1980s. Corporate tax rate in uh, in the U.S. at the time was 35 percent, uh, and and it was increasingly the highest uh, in, uh, corporate income tax rate in the OECD. They lowered it uh, to 21 percent. They passed uh, at the end of 2017. They passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and uh, this was very much uh, you know had Paul Ryan involved. Uh, so this is uh, you know uh, Republican uh, Senate and, and House along with the Trump administration. They passed in late 2017. He said, you know, let's make it go into effect Jan 1, 2018. So they did that. So the massive corporate tax uh, rate cut from 35% to 21%, which actually just puts it in the middle of the pack in terms of OECD corporate tax rates. But they also passed a, a few other provisions, including um, automatic um, expensing or accelerated expensing. This is, uh, has to do with sort of depreciation, how, how you expense depreciation. But it, it basically makes uh, capital expenditures somewhat more favorable and the whole sort of underlying economic theory behind the lower corporate tax rates in general is that you can incentivize uh, greater fixed investment um, and, and greater um, hiring of, of, of individuals so that makes it easier for, for corporations. And so there's been a few, so sort of roll forward the clock, you know, six, seven years or so, there's been uh, a few academic papers that have been uh, written by some uh, very um, prominent, but also very independent economists who, uh, as far as I can tell, have nothing to do with you know Republican politics uh, or conservative politics in, in in any way whatsoever. And if anything, or, you know, uh, it's they're just independent, uh, you know, sort of academic types who, who usually um, usually skew um, in the other direction. Uh, but th there's a there's a couple papers now uh, that that have uh, come out. One by uh, Patrick Kennedy, who's uh, an assistant professor at uh, uh, University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and so what he did was look at this uh, this corporate tax reform as as sort of a natural experiment, and uh, in, in sort of compares C corporations to S corporations. These are two different legal distinctions. C corporations essentially got a much bigger tax cut um, because they they were the ones that actually went from the thirty five percent to the twenty one percent rate. S corporations kind of got a lower tax uh, uh, um, cut. Uh, their their rate was uh, it was not that high um, previously, and and so just sort of comparing the two, how did C corporations change compared to S corporations? And and, and it turns out that the C corporations, which got the much bigger tax cut, um, did a lot more hiring uh, of of individuals and and, and did a lot more uh, fixed investment. Uh, compared to the S corporations after the tax bill was passed, so this suggests you know that, that there is some good evidence out there. Uh, and the other papers, of, uh, there's another paper uh, from some economists at, at Harvard and also Chicago Booth that it's sort of something similar, but with a sort of different methodology um, that, that suggests that uh, the tax cuts and jobs like did sort of have this intended effect of improving corporate investment. 
and, and hiring people. So, um, so, so that's the, the kind of main takeaway. There, there are some big legislative um, uh, hurdles coming up actually related to this. So the corporate tax cut, the 35 to 21% corporate tax cut that was on 2017 was, was permanent. Um, however, um, some of those expensing provisions that I mentioned are actually um, are, are, are expiring uh, beginning in, in next year. So, so this is going to be um, sort of a political uh, football in terms of what uh, what's going to be done. If anything, maybe they'll just expire uh, given the current sort of deadlock. Um, but uh, certainly something that uh, the next president will have to deal with. Um, and then there's also some small individual, um, smaller uh, individual um, tax cuts that are expiring as well um, as part of that original tax bill. There, there were some minor changes made to the individual side, some some small tax cuts um, on the individual side, but the bulk of it was corporate. And the evidence says it was, it was, it was pretty positive overall. I could use some help understanding uh, a point that you make in your article about how corporate tax is a more inefficient form of taxation compared with, say, individual income taxes. Uh, And you say it's because partially because corporations are more mobile than individuals. I'm not sure what that means. Can you help me out there? Sure. So, um, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, I I grew up in in, in Toronto uh, and uh, in, in the mid 2010s, at least, you know, Canada at a lower corporate tax rate than the U.S. did. So think think before any of this Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, business got passed, um, when when the U.S. had a 35% corporate tax rate and in, in, uh, in Canada had a, had a much lower one. So what what happened was, um, you know, during this time, Burger King, which is a U.S. corporation, uh, did something called a tax inversion, and they um, they essentially um, had sort of a, a a deal or sort of like a mergers type deal with um, with a company called Tim Hortons in, in Canada. And, and they structured their their acquisition um, or their merger such that uh, uh, that that essentially their headquarters would would uh, would be in in Canada, which has the lower corporate uh, corporate tax rate. So the the reason what by mobile, I mean you know it's very easy for corporations to shift where they're uh, you know for especially for multinational corporations you know that have footprints all over the world. It's really just sort of a legal technicality. Some level uh, where their their corporate um, where their corporate domicile is, and so you know you think about um, you know it gets much more complicated in terms of um, you know where you you know can shift earnings and, and, and things like that. But uh, but the, the the sort of overarching point is that you know capital and corporations are, are much more mobile than people, in that um, you know people. Uh, uh, like, you know, being uh, in, a, in a certain country and, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, maybe language, culture, um, uh, you know, they, they just, they're they're less likely to move uh, if you raise their taxes um, compared to, say, corporations where, you know, corporations are, you know, they have a lot of lawyers, they have a lot of accountants working for them. You know, they are much more uh, what economists would call elastic in response to, uh, a tax change. So when you think about it from an efficiency standpoint, um, you know, it's sort of almost uh, better to tax the individuals, um, you know, say even behind a company. So for example, you know, taxing capital gains uh, uh, rather than taxing, um, you know, corporate income, you know, because ultimately, you know, uh, the, the individuals that own the stock in the company are, are, are people, um, but, you know, they're, they're based in the U.S. and they're, you know, they're less likely to move if you raise their corporate, ta- their capital gains tax rates and if you were to tax the, the them on, on the corporate side of things, you know, because corporations can move more easily. So the idea is that 
you know, taxing individuals, whether it's through you know labor income or whether it's through um, you know, capital gains taxes. That that that's uh, yeah. There's there's caveats to this, and and you know there's obviously you know sort of a, a breaking point. Um, you know when taxes get so high, and and you also have to think about progressivity. And you know there's a lot of discussions about you know tax uh, taxing or soaking the rich. Um, you know, the, part of the challenge there is that there's only so many rich people, and so if you look at the U.S. tax code, which has very high taxes. Canada has similarly very top, you know, high top marginal tax rates, but you know, they tax the middle class much more to pay for all their entitlement. So some caveats, but that's the difference. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock here. We're talking with John Hartley. He is a Young Voices contributor. John, where can people find you on social media? Well, I'm at uh, John uh, underscore Hartley underscore um, on Twitter or X. Um, and I'm also on, on LinkedIn, Facebook, um, all, all those places as well. 